0: Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context. I'm going to let my guest today introduce himself.
1: Hi, my name is uh, Nick Klingensmith. I am the author of Through the Fire, and I guess we'll get to learn a little bit more about me and my story here in a minute.
0: That's the plan. Where Where are you from originally? Uh, originally, I was born and raised on Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. It's a little island that's been uh, gained some notoriety of recent for uh, things that are off topic. So,
1: <laughs> Yeah, there's there's always, I don't know, every couple of years, something happens that puts them back on the map for a minute, and then it falls away into obscurity again.
0: <laughs> um, for, for people that are not familiar with what life is like for a smaller kid, Martha Senior, can you dive into that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I'll say that the island living and growing up in the island is nothing like what anybody might think it is unless they're from a, a coastal town and they sort of understand, you know, after after Labor Day, it's a ghost town. I mean the people you know are the only people you the only people you see. The supermarket closes at six o'clock. There's one movie a week (laughs) being played at the theater. Um, You know, an exciting evening when you're like 12 years old or 15. I don't know how old we were anymore, but uh, I was like hanging out at the Cumberland Farms, like just to see who else you kind of run into. As you get older there, you know, the there's not a tremendous amount of white collar work. So, I mean, when I left, it was after I graduated college and it was because I'm not very good at banging nails and I just can't work in a restaurant for nine bucks an hour, maybe getting 20 hours a week for the rest of my life. But those are the, it's a very blue collar place. And, you know, a lot of fishermen, I grew up more on the retail side. I I serve coffee to the rich people, but I also serve coffee to the cab drivers, the bartenders, the the people who are there vacationing for the summer.
0: At what age were you when you first kind of ventured
1: out of the Cape? I mean, that's gonna have to be that's gonna have to be Petty for high school. I was ambitious when I was younger. I'm like sixth, seventh, eighth grade, and at the time, I just wanted to expand past the island. And so, as I got older, I started looking into boarding schools, and uh, actually found Petty not by design. I had applied to a couple schools like Choate, Milford, and, you know, in New England and uh, was either denied or wasn't given any financial aid to be able to attend. And then it was the summer right after um, Walter Annenberg had donated all that money. And actually my best friend's mom, her family lives in Cranberry. So they were very aware of the school and what had happened and suggested that I just apply. And I did. And uh, there was like me and three other people were like the first recipients of some of that money for financial aid. And one of which I'm still very good friends with to this day. And
0: that's what brought me to Petty in the first place. A a little personal question just because I grew up in Heights and and love it. Uh, What are your more fond memories from going to Petty and, and the surrounding area?
1: I really identified myself a lot with when I was on the track team, you know, it was classes were my least favorite part very quickly because in junior high and on the island, I was one of the smart kids. By the time I got to Petty, I wasn't (laughs) anymore. Uh, Teachers were great. You know, like there was just so many awesome things about the school. But when I really think about like my, my better memories, they were probably time spent with the track team, you know, whether it be actually the actual running or just
0: being on the team the bonding aspect of it. Yeah. I, I tried, Running, I was never a big fan of running. I hated running. Um, as I got older, I could enjoy it a little more. And the more the the peaceful serenity, throw your headphones in and just get moving. What was it about the track team, the the actual running aspect of it that you you enjoyed?
1: I, uh, you know, it's funny because I actually don't think I've ever enjoyed running, and I don't think I enjoy it now. <laughs> um, you know, when I got to petty, I was uh, I was chubby or fat for like a freshman, um, and really it was just I wasn't doing anything. Um, And it turned out I really wasn't good at other things. Like I got cut from the freshman baseball team. You know, I wasn't athletic. I'm still not. And I actually joined the crew team and I liked the conditioning aspect. It just gave me a way to start being physically active, you know, gain some confidence, not be like the chubby fat kid anymore. But here's the funny part. Having grown up on an island, I was actually kind of afraid of falling through the bottom of the boat. Swear to God. I really didn't like it. And I also really didn't like the getting up crazy early thing for working out part. So yeah. I, my, my tenure on the crew was very short and it was actually the next year that I ran on the cross country team and then became a runner, yeah. um, joined the track team. And I mean, everything from, I still stay in touch with coach Gardner. I mean, he was somebody who, you know, had a lot of impact on my life. So there was just a lot of things that, that tied it together. There were some key moments like over the four years, there was a few times that, I mean, I can reflect back to a couple meets that were really important to me and a couple moments, even like in trainings and practices that were like kind of resonate with me, but it's not like I really enjoyed the way I felt at the time. <laughs>
0: right. Now, without giving too much away, you're, it says on the cover of your book, you're a, a four-time cancer survivor, a type one diabetic and recovering alcoholic. When did you start drinking? Were you reading the book a little bit and, and understanding where your parents, um, uh, were in your life and and how your interaction with them was. I know some alcoholics have a history when both their parents are alcoholics. They kind of start young before they hit like 10 or 12. What was that experience like for you?
1: You know, it's, I remember the first time I got drunk and I want to say I was around 12 or 13. Um, It was actually the summer before high school or maybe it was the year before. No, I think it was then. Might've been the year before, but no, it was that summer. Okay. Sorry. Um, It was that year, but. I didn't become a drinker for a long time. You know, I was actually one of the more behaved kids at like in high school. I was a white collar criminal. If uh, <laughs> if I did anything there, that's topic for another day. But, um, you know, I, I when I was home in the summertime, even though growing up on the island was a great place to party, I got up and went to work at five o'clock in the morning so I could go to the beach at three o'clock in the afternoon. So I could go hang out with my friends and I just, you know, I couldn't. My father was pretty strict at the time, so like I couldn't come home having been drunk and I couldn't really meet my other responsibilities to sleep everywhere. So I just didn't really prioritize drinking as a big part of my life. Like I certainly enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed the way it made me feel. It definitely gave me like kind of superhuman abilities in my mind. And, you know, when you're at that age and for some reason people like think tolerance is like a sign of, I don't know, anything, yeah. <laughs> it made me feel better about myself that I had like superhuman like tolerance compared to most of the people around me, but I would say, like, you know, the more consistent... I was never even that... And I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I was never a daily drinker. Okay. There just came a point where the bad became
0: to significantly outnumber the good. Got it. And that was prior to your first cancer scare, correct? Or you, you were kind of, I guess, an alcoholic prior to getting that... The news of cancer the first time, correct? Um... I'm going to say that
1: I was probably an alcoholic from the moment I first had that drink when I was 12 years old. You know, as I continue to look back on my life, just seeing that my personal behavior, even outside of alcohol, follows a typical pattern of an alcoholic, even if I wasn't drinking all the time. You know, I definitely partied harder in my early 20s, but again, it's like what seemed normal at the time. I didn't make different priorities over, over booze, you know? Uh, when I got cancer the first time I was barely drinking at all. That was when I was suffering heavily from like sleep apnea before I got a CPAP machine and I was just too tired to Party. I was just too miserable. Yeah. So it really wasn't by the time I had cancer for the third time, that was when I ripped the band aid off. Got it. Like I went for broke at that point.
0: <laughs> when did you learn you were a because you, you've, you've got a number of medical issues. You, you have the alcoholism past. that. That's a lot for a person to kind of deal with you, especially not only having a cancer diagnosis once, but having it coming back. And, and the particular cancer that you had, and I love that when doctors say, oh, well, if you want to have a cancer, that's a good one to have, which to me is just an absurd statement because most people don't want to have any form of cancer. Um, we actually had a, a scare with that particular cancer with our youngest, He was involved in an accident, and when they did the head scan, they noticed something in his throat, which led us to go to CHOP, and he had to have a biopsy. And unfortunately, it just turned out that it was – there's a gland as an infant that develops in your head, and as you grow, it kind of breaks into pieces and travels down and starts dissipating, and it happened to be some of those parts of the gland were actually in his thyroid. So it worked out very well for us that it didn't – you know wasn't anything to worry about. How old is he? Uh, he's now 12. And this was, he was about five years old when we went through this. Oh, wow. So that'd be way too young to go for that. He fortunately didn't have to deal with the stress of it for, <laughs> right. for my wife and I, it was, you know, we were going out of our, out of our heads. You were at a, a conference, so to speak. Um, when you got that news, can you walk us through that a little bit?
1: Yeah. Um, it was, it was very dumb luck, really, how we found it. Kind of same situation that you just, not same situation, but similar how you just described it. I was having, I was waking up with a substance on my tongue in the morning. I later discovered it was dried blood. Um, I was in a new apartment in Milford, Massachusetts, crummy old New England heating, a thousand year old building. And as I later found out, I had sleep apnea. So I'm sure just Whatever, but I didn't know where it was coming from. So I started seeing doctor after doctor after doctor, excluding everything. Uh until finally I see an ENT guy and that's when he was just feeling around my throat. And it's almost like we both knew at the same time. He paused and I don't know. I, I swear because I just swear for some reason I knew. I didn't know much about it, didn't know anything about it. So he ordered the biopsy a couple days later, which I describe in the book as being one of the worst experiences I think somebody can have. Um, Well, just, yeah, you're just getting stabbed in the neck over and over and over again. And it's, it's, it's uncomfortable, but we were at our sales kickoff uh, convention for the telecommunications company that I was working at at the time and just anxiously waiting all day for the results from the doctor. And then when I finally got him we were like during the closing remarks or something, this was at a casino up in, uh, Connecticut. So I walked down the hallway to take the call and, you know, the doctor was very calm about it and told me that it was papillary carcinoma. It was cancer. You know, he just immediately said, we need you to get you to come in. You know, obviously we're going to have to do surgery and we'll talk about it. And it was, it was definitely emotional. Like, I don't think I admit, I didn't think I really admitted to being scared right away, but I mean, you just can't hear cancer and be nonchalant. Like there's just, I didn't know how to express it. I didn't really want to, I was calm with him. You know, when him and I spoke, it was very formal. It was like, okay, all right, cool. See you Tuesday you know, check. And then honestly, I think I just wanted this. I was going to go meet my friend at the poker room. So I kind of wanted this just to be my excuse to not have to sit out the rest of the convention. So I kind of walked in and I grabbed my bag and it was true. I was like, I just can't be here right now. And I just kind of wanted to like put it in my pocket and not deal with it. And then my boss, a good guy, a friend of mine, he followed me out and he knew it was going on already. And when I had to tell him is when I was just like, I could barely keep it together. And, uh, you know, I, I eventually went and played poker, and I tried putting it in my pocket for a little while, but I, I had a very quick exit from the poker room, and uh, that's when I had just to think about it and
0: face myself. It's like trying to put a, a hot coal in your pocket and expecting not to get burnt. Yeah. <laughs> that obviously dramatically changed the course of your life, taking time off from work, trying to adjust and, and start, a re, start living with the reality that you have cancer. What kind of impact did that have with you towards your friends and family?
1: I isolated a lot. You know, it's funny, a couple, about two years ago, something I was on a, uh, zoom call. I think it was during the lockdown um, with a bunch of like other Spartan racers. And there was a woman on there who had recently gone through breast cancer and they were talking to us both and obviously two different cancers, two different experiences altogether. But, you know, she talked like she was the director of the medical team. <laughs> I couldn't tell you five medical things about, <laughs> about my own illness. And I was just so impressed. Cause like, You know, for her, she was like, yeah, I just that's how I have to take charge of, you know, the illness of my life. And I have since taken a different approach, which is, you know, I have a doctor for that. Should I know better? Should I be more informed on some things? Probably. But at the same time, like I choose to let cancer take so little from me that I am entrusting professionals to do X, Y or Z. You know, I've recently found and I do mean recently that that's not always the best approach because at the same time you find that, you know things that need to be addressed that don't get a, that don't get addressed eventually find their way to the surface right and i think i've actually kind of felt some of that maybe even this past year but at the same time yeah it has changed my it's changed my life because it was then that i said okay well i'm just not a victim i'm not going to be a victim at all
0: when did you decided to start doing those all the, the obstacle racing because I've done a Tough Mudder I did the, actually one of the first mud runs that I did was the Tough Mudder I think it was the 14 mile one and I did it with a couple guys that I used to work with and it was just it's so much fun I, I, can't, I, I can't explain to people why it's fun not only just to run in the mud and get dirty but the, the challenge to some of the obstacles it, it's almost euphoric to a degree and I encourage anybody who hasn't done one, give it a try. And you don't even have to run the whole thing. You just don't even have to go through every obstacle, but just try your best to get from point A to point B and cross the finish line. I actually did one this summer with both my boys, and next summer we're going to do the same one with our whole family. So my kids love it. It was awesome. My youngest That was a
1: genius move they made was the Spartan kids.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, we're doing a, a Rugged Maniac. Um, nice. Actually, my oldest and I did a Spartan race, the one of the stadium series ones at um, Citizens Bank Park. And I hate stairs now. (laughs) There's so many stairs up and down the bleachers across. That was nuts. But what what about the those types of runs? And you've done some (laughs) pretty epic ones. What is it that you take from those?
1: Everyone, I'm gonna say, has something different because my, my journey through this has evolved quite a bit. You know, I actually commented to a friend the other day how the back of the book, the description, says how the journey kind of culminates in 127 miles of endurance racing in six weeks. That's like a long weekend now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think something that I wanted to—it's uh, funny because you know, I my my Facebook account does a lot of my this part of my lifestyle, but that's not all that it is. Mm. Yet my Instagram account is primarily dedicated to this type of life. And I think one thing that I haven't pointed out enough recently is I'm not very good at this <laughs> at best. I'm a slightly above average athlete. Like, and the reason I say that is because for, you know, anyone who hears this and anyone who ever sees my stuff, the reason I show like all of it is because I want to encourage others that they can do the same thing. And that's been my biggest takeaway from this experience is that sometimes a race is just a race. Sometimes climbing over a wall is just a wall. But sometimes that first time you beat that obstacle that you haven't been able to, that you've been struggling, Mm -hmm. there's a reason they tell you to take baby steps of things first. You build confidence and that confidence is real, you know. So and oftentimes it's not just a physical. It's more often than not. It's not that you needed to be stronger accomplish to achieve the obstacle. You, you might have just needed to use your technique faster. Be a little, you know, maybe there is something that you needed to work on and correct. But point is oftentimes to solve these physical problems, it requires us to use our mind. It requires us to use our body. It does require like some meditation and breathing and so does every other problem. Yeah. I mean it really does give me the ability to feel like no matter what bad, catastrophic next thing that might happen, we're gonna be
0: able to keep moving forward. I agree. I think that confidence that people can develop through whatever means whether it's you know the obstacle racing um whatever sport they're doing martial arts whatever that confidence kind of transcends wherever it originated and, and really permeates throughout the rest of their life when did you start transitioning from the obstacles to the marathons I don't know
1: if I transitioned. I would say that I added it. it. You know, this started back in late 2016 when my boss walked into my office and was like, hey, let's do a Spartan race. And at first I was like, hell no. You know, the thought of just doing eight mile running and then obstacles and the trail and I'm afraid of heights and I'm afraid of snakes. And like, this just is miserable, you know? And I was like, nobody wants to get that uncomfortable until later I realized I already was. I was so uncomfortable in my own skin, you know? And that's what got me into the first race. And then you achieve the first thing. And then we're like, okay, well, now we need our trifecta which is getting three different race distances in a year, you know, then all of a sudden I'm like, wow, I just completed a 13 14 mile obstacle race on the side of a mountain somewhere in the middle of the rain. Why can't I do this next thing? And that's where actually the option of running the Chicago marathon in 2017 was presented to me. And it was just then when I was like, why not? Like, why not me? And it was really probably the first time I'd ever asked that question. You know, I always say that I'm not going to be a threat to take anybody's podium, but why not? There's every single day I proved that whatever thinks it can hold me back can't hold me back. So it's like, why not? I'm not saying that's the goal, but so anyways, after I was in a bad car accident that summer and was unable to run in the Chicago marathon. So then I just got really mad and uh, fairly immature and I decided that I needed to run the Boston marathon. I had actually wanted to ever since the bombing. It's just I'd be, I never before thought it was something that I was capable of. And then it was actually another Petty alum, a uh, friend, of Amy Cardello, who introduced me to a woman named Sir, Susan Hurley, who's the executive director of the charity teams. And that's how I was able to get into Boston for the first time.
0: What was it like? I mean, Boston is is one of the like the marathons. Yes. Yeah. What, was, what was that like when you crossed the finish line for that the first time?
1: This marathon was... For me, it was a culmination of everything I had ever had to go through to get there, and I mean everything. You know, again, something that I never before thought remotely possible for someone like me. That on top of all that, I grew up there. You know, I've been in the marathon a dozen times. I just usually I was there to either get drunk or go to the Red Sox game or do both. Like, it was the holy grail. It was like this icon. You know, like a million people lined the streets to go. And it's always been that way. And my grandparents live and my aunts and uncles live right on uh, Heartbreak Hill. So anyways, to me, it was like such a big deal to be there. And because I had to fundraise for it, I, I raised uh, about $8,500 for a uh, organization called the Last Call Foundation. They raise money for firefighters, fire safety, upkeep of firehouse and equipment. And my father's a retired firefighter. So it was like very tied to that. So being there 100% of the time was a massively emotional day for me. Like just being there was such a level of success. But I got lucky enough to have the worst weather in the history of the Boston Marathon. Uh, It was 18 degrees at the start, 40-mile-an-hour headwinds, and torrential downpour the entire time. Not one second did it let up. And me having been training and living in Florida now for years, I hate the heat so much that I run in the most minimal amount of clothing as possible, and that's what I did there too a thin little shirt there. So it was, I, I mean, I had hypothermia at one point. I couldn't reach the gels in my pocket because I realized my hands were frozen mm-hmm. shut. Oh, I had uh, I had worn gloves, but they soaked through. Right. So at one point they had to come off like, and the funny part is, I mean, right there, I'm finishing the race, but I don't, I mean, it was, it was suffering. It was suffering in the truest of terms. Over 5,000 people dropped out of that race. That Many went brutal. to the hospital and I smiled a good 90% of it. <laughs> but finishing it was I mean overcoming all that and then just a race again that so many people were like nope next year yeah like that was incredible for me.
0: Since then you, you've run a number of marathons including I believe you referred to it as like the elite series and you were just in Germany for for one correct
1: Yeah the Abbott world Majors is uh, they host the Chicago
0: New York, uh, London, Tokyo, and Berlin marathons. And I, if I recall correctly, the, the gentleman that won that race broke his own personal record. If I recall, Kipchoge,
1: he had uh, he broke his own previous world record. I like to think that I pushed him to do that. <laughs> Chasing him, I, yeah, he knew I was there, uh, three hours and change behind him. But yeah. <laughs>
0: That's one thing I try and get through my kids is, you know, if you start something, finish it, um, regardless of how much suck is involved in the process, because you never know what the rewards are going to be. And and clearly getting yourself going and motivated into doing the races. Do you think that your a little bit of your, your track time in high school and your beach volleyball, which obviously you clearly loved, according to the book? Do you think that kind of just everything was kind of escalating and then you finally cum- culminated into a, a spot where it's really just you versus yourself with everything. It's, it's not necessarily against other people now, but your races are, are you verse yourself? Do you, do you think that your experiences in the past have led to that or do you not see it as a you versus yourself? It's, it's you versus everything.
1: I never actually thought of it like that, that they were leading up to that in that sense. Um, And it would be hard to say no to that. You know, my time in track, number one, really was probably one of the first times I felt like I belonged. You know, I had friends, but I wasn't like the popular guy and didn't really know where to fit in. And I felt I fit in there. It also, it just, it did challenge me to be better than myself. Uh, But at the same time, it was small enough that you were competing against others, you know. But at the same time, like I actually come to think of it. Yeah. I only remember one or two times where I cared about the person that I was actually competing against. Cause I think in the whole time I ran there, I might've scored twice or something like it all was about self-improving. And I think it was something that, I mean, I tried to run a couple times the the 20 years after that, but it was just, I was never committed towards something. Volleyball was an absolute love. And I would say that if I compare anything now to what I did then is when you, that feeling of beating that obstacle, that tough one, especially one, you haven't rung that bell before, like that's those kind of highs that you would get during a good, like good volleyball game. You know, you're in the middle of just a, a dog fight and you just, rip the ball and get the point. You come up with a great dig. It's just that adrenaline that I did miss, but that's a skill game that one of the things about the obstacle course racing is that I compete in my age group. So when I want to track my progress, I'm not tracking it against the next like 19 year old Kipchoge, you know, the, (laughs) the person who they may or may not have better or worse circumstances to me, but at least we're all suffering from the same old age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the best part about that is half the people I look up to, if not more are older than me, you know, and there's so much more time to continue to just learn how to be badass and to just have fun. Whereas as you play volleyball, you do age out
0: of being competitive. Yeah. You know, there's not age group for that. <laughs> there was, it was funny. Cause we, my kids and I did the, the run over the summer Right out of the gate, my oldest is like, I'm going to go, and I'm just going to go. I'm like, I'd rather stay as a group, but, you know, you do you, and he just fucking was gone. I think I saw him at the last half mile crossing paths, but my youngest stayed with me, and we did all the obstacles together, you know, me with the issues that I have. I couldn't run the whole thing as much as I wanted to, but I did what I could and kind of pushed myself to push my youngest, and we were about halfway through, and we had a couple kids come up behind us. And the one kid said it was his third time doing the course for the day that he'd done the first he which is the real competitive one. And it's only a three-mile mud run, and I think there's 21 or so obstacles. And he was just kind of, oh, yeah, I just did it in, like, 24 minutes. And I'm like, three miles in 24 minutes is impressive enough without any obstacles. And then knowing the obstacles that we went through, I'm just like, I wish I could even just do a fraction of that. My kid goes, he did it how fast? Like, yeah, well we're not competing against anybody, so we just we're doing our own thing. But for 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 my kid, I, I couldn't express the joy that I in seeing the smile on his face. And then we came up to one obstacle, it was a bunch of monkey bars or a series of bars that swung different directions. And he's like, Oh, I can't pass that. I'm like, You don't know, you didn't even try. And, you know, having everybody be else behind you, there are everybody there is motivating you and he jumped up, he got across the bars and he's literally all he had to do is reach out and grab the the, fin, the final bar and, and work his way down and he was just kind of started hanging i'm watching his grip slowly give up on the bar i'm like just swing and reach and i'm watching I'm, i literally probably the very last second that he had a grip he just swung and reached and caught the end and, and made it across Oh, nice and the joy and elation on his face from like the, the, holy shit i just finished that I, I really crossed that and it's it's those things that I, I i try to push with my kids that you you don't know what you're capable of until you do it so don't push anything out and and clearly the both the, the medical things that you've overcome and obviously the, the physical obstacles that you've overcome numerous times with your number of races it to me it it speaks volumes to to your perseverance and your your ability to alter perspectives how much of a profound effect has the way you've done your races and, and the marathons and stuff kind of affect led over into your, your personal life?
1: So the way that one of the most definitive things for me that I've been able to take away and know that it was because of everything I've learned from this lifestyle was I was at a job for a very long time, a job I talk about in the book. And I actually mention in the book a couple of times, just the stress of work, the stress of work. So I left January 2019 without a next step. I had conversations, you know, that I'm still very good friends with the people there, but I had to get out. It wasn't actually good for my mental health anymore. And being at a, you know, fairly high paying executive type role, usually you don't just quit. (laughs) I'm, you know, uh, without getting stuff lined up, but I had to, Yeah. Um, it was affecting my day-to-day. It was affecting my marriage. Like it was affecting my health and it was, you know, I felt like it was going to affect my sobriety. And without that, I have nothing. So It's kind of like jumping and, out of a plane without a parachute. Yeah. And I was able to do it because of this life. What I mean by able to do it is that I was mentally able to do it. I was mentally able to know it's going to be okay. I actually got fell ass backwards into my own uh, consulting company, put in mostly by my prior employer who started hiring me you know, uh, 1099 to do some recruiting for them on the side. Well, the next thing you know, I picked up another couple of clients. Next thing you know, I'm doing some training documents and next thing I'm doing some coaching. And then I got my first consulting job and, you know, like this was all, you know, we're literally living week to week, you know, but at the same time succeeding, like without really having missed a financial beat and all I can do. And I'm not a, I'm not a religious person, but I am a spiritual person as part of this process is just having faith in a higher power and that, I can't control the universe, so I just keep taking that next action. And a lot of that, you know, not every race is just a race. Sometimes it really is a metaphor for our lives and it puts things into perspective and to know that if I keep moving forward towards something, I'm not saying it's easy, but I've been able to succeed until the next job and the next job and the next job
0: Kind of, without losing my sanity. (laughs) (laughs) That's a key thing. So it sounds more like uh, you weren't necessarily falling forward, you were, you were stumbling forward until you got your feet under you, and now you're, to use the metaphor, you've been, you're running full speed ahead. You, you mentioned a little bit in your book, a couple different relationships you had. How did you meet your wife?
1: We met at a wedding back in 2014, just after, literally the month after I stopped drinking. She was a bridesmaid, and I was a groomsman for my friend Warren, who had gone to college with me. And so we met then. I had a girlfriend at the time. She had a boyfriend at the time, and we didn't see each other for years, but we kept in touch with Facebook and uh, both seemingly much like yourself, a good Star Wars nerd. So we would start, yeah, we would make some share some Star Wars memes and stuff like that. And then uh, probably about, uh, let me see, February, yeah, about three months about three months after I had broken up with my ex-girlfriend about two years later, Lisa and I were still talking. I didn't even know that she was single at the time. And then we started hanging out and
0: one thing led to another and we're married. Sounds sort of along the lines of Dan. and I don't think we ever really have officially had a, a date per se. Um, I just knew that the instant she walked into the the pizza shop, I'm like, my God, she's beautiful. And I'll, I'm going to marry her someday. I don't know when, but we will. And, yeah. And what is that? Five, six years later, we got married.
1: Funny um, how that time flies. And I was very lucky oh, yeah. because I had no interest in meeting anybody new like ever again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, I was <laughs> uh, part of the reason I had, you know, I, I was just, I was just a little over two years sober. I wasn't, you know, I was in a relationship when I got sober and then that was a relationship that I later ended. And got dating and meeting people and having to tell them like parts of my story or when do you or how do you plus some, it's just a lie. And I hated it, I hated it all. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to hang out with people, but I'm not doing this whole get to know you nonsense. Like she knew me already. Right. She, you know, and because our friends were friends, like there wasn't much that she didn't know about me. It was just, and, and, and she liked me anyway. So right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> she kind of knew what she was getting herself into. Yeah, I mean, as much as anybody could. So as we kind of mentioned, four-time cancer survivor, diabetic, these are things that have such a profound impact, and you have to be very careful, um, you know, nutritionally staying regimented with your medicine. What advice would you give somebody who's either just finding out for the first time they have cancer or that they're a diabetic? What words of encouragement would you give people?
1: I don't know if it's encouragement, but I will just say this, as cliche as it sounds, live your life. These these situations, these circumstances have no more power over you than you allow them to. Yes, things might be harder. They might take longer. You know, it may not be as much fun, but there's nothing that we can't do. For whatever time we've got, It's it's ours to live it. So cancer is a scary thing, but you know what? People get struck by lightning too. Like we can't dwell on the when. Diabetes tries to control your life, and I, I I, do, I pity those who refuse to take it back. It's a hard life what I do, but at the same time, I'm not the only one who does it. It is a proven case day after day that none of those things can stop you from living your life so long as we're here.
0: So, I think that's a very profound perspective. So um, I'm going to jump into a few questions that are kind of, which would you rather? Excellent. Um, <laughs> You can either answer it or you can pass and it's all about having a little fun. So let's see the first one we'll go with. Which would you rather cut in front of a line anywhere you go or have front row parking everywhere you go? Oh, cut in front of the line. <laughs> <laughs> no brainer. Uh, I think I, I, think I agree with that one. Um, I don't mind parking far away and walking. Uh, yeah. I, I usually do it on purpose. Yeah. Give a hundred dogs a bath or milk a hundred dairy cows.
1: Oh, God, the, the dogs. Uh,
0: I, I think I'd have to go with, with the cows, and that comes from my, my childhood on the farm. <laughs> Milking a cow can be very cathartic. Once you get the rhythm going. <laughs> Take some time. I'm going to stick with the dogs. <laughs> Would you rather attend a Halloween party hosted by mad scientists or cannibals?
1: Ooh, Well, we're going to have to go with mad scientists. At least there's, you know something that might be entertaining and possibly dangerous, where the other one sounds not like a good evening for me.
0: Doesn't sound like the uh, the cannibal one's going to end very well. No. Would you rather be a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle or a Thundercat? Oh, man, that's a hard one. <laughs> wow, really? <sighs> I Had to get you with one to make you think.
1: I almost answered Ninja Turtle before you even got a chance to say Thundercat, but now, wow, that's tough. And we're going to have to go Ninja Turtle.
0: Any reason why?
1: Yeah, I think once we get past Lionel, you're like, meh. And the rest of the time,
0: he's not that cool. <laughs> I don't know. That sword's pretty badass, but I, I think I yeah, agree. The, but uh, I mean, it is the sword, you know? Uh, I agree. I think I would have to to go with uh, Teenage Tree Ninja Turtle, just uh, not necessarily living in the sewers, but they kind of made it their home and, you know, chowing down on pizza all the time. And uh, let's see, we'll go with the last one of, would you rather get stung in the face by a bee or have a bug crawl deep into your ear? The bee. I, 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 I actually, one time I was writing a report for school and I felt something on the edge of my ear. And as I kind of rubbed my finger and I kept looking at the lump, and I asked my mother, I'm like, what is this lump? And she goes, it's a tick. So I almost had a tick crawling in my ear. That was... <sighs> wigged me out so I'd, I'd definitely i i definitely rather never get... beching con... <laughs> i would never be convinced that it's gone like that's just <laughs> i, I uh I, yeah i would have to go to the, the stung on the face i've been stung before It sucks for a few minutes but then it is yeah limited. you'll be all right so uh, i've i've stolen your about 45 minutes of your time any um any parting words anywhere where people can find your book anything you want to share um well, uh, yeah, the book Through the Fire is on Amazon for paperback hardcover
1: or Kindle, and if you've got a Kindle Unlimited subscription, then it's available anytime. I was working on the next book earlier today and actually a part on quitting and how, and it was kind of relevant to what we were just discussing, which the difference between quitting and failing, a lot of people don't see the difference. They figure, well, I guess I failed because I quit. Quitting is a decision. It's a willful decision to not pursue your goals. And I would always rather fail than quit. And if you fail because of your inability, whether it be physically, mentally, spiritually, whatever, we still have the opportunity to learn and do again. And if nothing else, we can at least spend our time
0: trying instead of willfully giving up on ourselves. I absolutely love that perspective. I always say, when I was coaching wrestling to kids, it's like, don't be afraid to lose. Losing is can be some of the best ways to learn. You learn from your mistakes. Mistakes are the greatest teacher. I wholeheartedly agree with the idea that quitting is that conscious effort of failure. And I would rather fail at something because at least then I tried. And you can learn where or what caused you to fail, make your corrections, and then turn that failure into a success. If you start quitting, it gets easier to quit. Everything's easy to quit. Life, life is Life can be easier in some ways if you quit, but the... Hardships will compound, and the more you quit, the harder the hardships are to get out of. I kind of look at it as like quicksand—you know, you, you struggle, you're, you're just making things worse. With that being said, I definitely look forward to the to the new book. So please let me know when you when it's released. This book, I'm, I when I sit down to read it, I, I'm flying through it. Very easy read. It's a very intriguing. It's very captivating. So I encourage everybody to, to grab a copy and, and read it. It's it, it's inspiring in a number of ways. Anybody uh, website or, or social media is that people can follow you at?
1: Probably the best place to keep keep tabs of me would be uh, Instagram, and that's uh, through the fire four two seven nine. My author page on Facebook, which you can just look up Nick Smith. But I do have a website that I don't really keep very active, so we'll say that right now. Instagram is uh, probably the most exciting stuff. You can see uh, most recent coverage from the uh, Berlin Marathon as well as a bunch of Dirty Heads lyrics because that's what I was jamming to. <laughs>
0: what's uh, what's next on your agenda what race? Well, uh, you know, I, bro- I broke my rib back in, in June. That's actually what spur- spurred the conversation was. Uh, yes, had, that's right. I saw the injury, and I'm like, what the hell did he do to himself? It took me two of the last three months to actually find out
1: what I did. But uh, in an obstacle race, I was twisting and pulling on a rope, and something had to give, and my I fractured the cartilage of my eighth rib. I can't say it was the most painful thing I'd ever been through, but it was very close. It was mile three of the eight mile race. I was in age group, so I had to do all the obstacles or the penalties. There's no skipping anything. I completed the race, and if you were anywhere, and I mean anywhere in Ohio, you heard me drop F-bombs all day long. <laughs> and I got through it, and I'm glad I did because I just had a bad feeling that I wouldn't be able to race again for a while. Yeah, It forced me to really focus on Berlin on the marathon, but, I mean, I had to tape my ribs like I've been – I've ran and trained over 400 miles with the broken rib. Um, I ran the marathon with the broken rib and I mean, I still feel it. It's I'm not healed. So right now I'm, this is, I just finished week two of recovery. Um, We're going to go slow and and try to see what I can do to actually not only heal up and not do it again. So I've canceled any of my obstacle races until the end of the year in December in Florida, uh, which will be a pretty big event. And, I mean, I'm in great shape right now. I ran my best race in Berlin. So I would like to, I'm going to, I'd like to beat last
0: year's yeah. race. That's my next Got big it. event. Awesome. Well, I wish you luck uh, you're, keep on keeping on and keep on trucking. Life is clearly a marathon and not a sprint. So, Truth. I, <laughs> Thanks I, for having me on. I, I appreciate it. your time. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. And also support our show via Patreon and send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.